This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew 27. With this passage, we come to one of two events that uh, form the climax of Matthew's Gospel. Those two events, of course, are the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, as we've seen, has spoken of these things to his disciples numerous times, yet they were slow to understand what he was saying. We need to recognize also that um, not only do these events form the climax of Matthew's gospel, they also form the climax of all of Scripture. As you look at the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament has been pointing to and moving toward and building up to uh, these events that we'll be looking at today and, Lord willing, next week. And So let's, uh, this morning, read uh, as our sermon text, Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 61. Hear the word of God. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, this would be about 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The other said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, 
We thank you for this passage, for the events that it describes. And Father, we recognize that these verses describe not merely ancient history, but they describe our eternity. And Father, we pray that you would bless to us the contemplation of these words, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we focused on the mocking that Jesus endured from various quarters. Uh, Actually, it was in last week's passage that Jesus suffered crucifixion, which, as we noticed, Matthew mentions the physical event of his being nailed to the cross itself almost in passing, just in a subordinate clause earlier in this chapter, verse 35, and when they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. But Matthew's focus up to Jesus' crucifixion and even after it in that passage had to do with those who were ridiculing Jesus, those who were mocking him, those taunting him and making fun of him. And Matthew is showing the utter rejection, the utter desolation that Jesus endured from the hands of men. Uh, up to and even after he was nailed to the cross. But if Jesus experienced the rejection of men as painful as that might have been, in this passage he experiences a rejection and an abandonment that goes so far beyond what he endured at the hands of men that our minds can scarcely fathom what took place. And so as we look at the passage today, uh, the sermon title, of course, you may recognize uh, is taken from the Apostles' Creed as we describe the events of our Lord Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And these, this passage divides into those three parts. So we want to look at his crucifixion, his death, his burial, what happened in his crucifixion, uh, what happened with his death. And then his burial as well. So first of all, we look at his crucifixion. His crucifixion involved unimaginable suffering. But not in the way you might at first think. You know, we think of crucifixion uh, as physically painful. And of course it was uh, because of the nails piercing the body, uh, because of the torment to the muscles and bones and ligaments as uh, you hung there growing weaker on the cross. Uh, death from the cross could come from several fronts. It could come from loss of blood and shock, but typically it came, curiously enough, from suffocation because hanging there, it was very hard to breathe, and you had to push up with your feet to breathe and give some relief to the upper body and the lungs, but eventually you became so weakened you couldn't push up with your feet, and breathing became very difficult, uh, and so uh, many would die simply from suffocation. I've heard and read uh, sermons and articles having to do with the physical phenomenon of Jesus' crucifixion, and it is fascinating in a a way. But we need to recognize that really is not the gospel's concern. Matthew was not concerned so much with Jesus' physical suffering. There's uh, a sense in which that itself was was quite secondary, uh, instrumental in bringing about Jesus' death, which was necessary, but the physical pain itself was was secondary and actually not even unique. Now, there were two other men suffering the exact same thing physically right there with Jesus. 
And there were many who had suffered this before him, and there would be those who would suffer this crucifixion after him. And so the physical pain, horrible as it may be, was nothing unique to Jesus. In fact, others enduring it right there with him. The suffering of his crucifixion that mattered, that Matthew is concerned with, and Mark and Luke and John, actually comes from another quarter. So let's look at the events that take place here. The first thing we notice is this judgment indicated by darkness. The darkness that comes over the land in verse 45. There's no point really in speculating as to physical reasons for this darkness. Uh, that's not the point. In fact, I would argue this was a supernatural darkness that came over the land for a very good reason. Darkness in that way was associated with the judgment of God. It was an accompaniment, an expression of, an indicator of displeasure and judgment of God. We encounter this kind of darkness much earlier in the scriptures, for example, uh, with the plagues on Egypt, God's judgment on Egypt until they let Israel go from their land. And this darkness came over all the land of Egypt. But an even more clear expression of what that darkness meant is found in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, that speaks quite specifically in a prophetic way to the events of Matthew 27. Uh, Amos chapter 8, verse 9 says, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, which was the sixth hour of the day, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning. You can imagine that this strange darkness that came over the land did put something of a damper on the feast of Passover. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. This darkness, I will darken the earth in broad daylight. It's an expression of the judgment of God. And you think, well, I should think so. You know, the way, the way they treated the Son of God, they deserved the judgment of God. Perhaps so. But it wasn't on Jerusalem, and it wasn't on Judea, that this judgment of God, signified by the darkness, was falling. We see the one on whom it fell in verse 46. About the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, and Matthew records it for us as Jesus presumably would have said it in his native tongue, which is Aramaic, Eli, Eli, which means my God, Lema Sabachthani, why, Lema, have you forsaken me, Sabachthani, translates for us, for his readers, for us too, um, Jesus is crying out here, and he uses the words of Psalm 22, which we read and looked at some last week, because so much of Psalm 22 finds fulfillment in the events of Jesus' crucifixion, from the people encompassing him, gathered about him, the casting lots for his clothes, uh, all of these things taking place. If you read Psalm 22, almost like a checklist of things that had to happen, that had to be fulfilled, and were fulfilled, in Jesus' suffering. Well, Jesus uses the first words of that psalm as an expression of his own abandonment, his own dereliction, this cry 
of agony that indicates the true nature of his suffering on the cross. The true nature of that darkness indicating the judgment of God. And that was the very rejection and abandonment of his father. That one with whom Jesus had known nothing but the closest fellowship, the most intimate of communion from eternity past. And Jesus now experiences not the rejection of Rome, not even the rejection of the Jews, but the rejection of his own father. Why? Well, because it was the very nature of Jesus as he was hanging there on the cross to bear the sin of his people, even to become the sin of his people. And the scriptures indicate in numerous places the loathing, the hatred, the displeasure of God towards sin. We think of Habakkuk, uh, where he says of the Lord, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, to look on iniquity. Jesus had become the very embodiment of iniquity. He was iniquity itself hanging there on the cross. We think of what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that the Lord made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might the righteousness of God in him. As Jesus was there on that cross, he became sin. We think of what Paul would write in Galatians 3, where he would uh, quote from the Old Testament, describing the cursed nature of Jesus. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus crucified there on that tree-like cross was a cursed thing under the wrath, under the judgment, under the curse of God. And Jesus, as he's there on the cross, experiences the vileness, not just of your sin alone, but the sins of every believer in this room, the sins of every believer in the world. He became their sin. And not only so, in becoming their sin, he experiences, for the first time ever, the displeasure, indeed the loathing, the hatred, the curse of his father. There's something very mysterious about what happened on the cross that we don't understand, that we can't understand. How could God be separated from himself? And yet that's exactly what takes place here as God the Father heaps his judgment upon God the Son, least in his humanity, bearing our sin, hanging there on the cross, absorbing an eternity of hell for everyone who would believe in him during that time on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? And yet notice there's still an element of trust. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out even in the midst of that agony. The judgment is indicated by the darkness. It's indicated by Jesus' cry of dereliction. It's also indicated by Jesus' statement of completion. I hesitate to call it a cry of victory. In some ways it is that. It's certainly not a, uh, a, a lament of despair. Some have suggested that Jesus' final cry on the cross indicated resignation to defeat. Far from it. We read um, that Jesus says in verse 50, cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Probably what John records is Jesus saying, it is finished. His expression that he had accomplished what he had come to do. 
It's interesting while he cries out that uh, there is this response prior to that. Uh, they misunderstand. He's calling for Elijah. Uh, the Lord is my God is something of the meaning of the name Elijah. You can see the similarity with Eli. Uh, they thought you know, he's calling out for Elijah to come help. And there was some thought since Elijah had been taken up to heaven without dying that he was available to help those who were oppressed or in distress and think, well, Jesus is crying out for him. And uh, along with that, John tells us, Jesus said, I thirst, and someone offered him some sour wine on a sponge, which, by the way, he, he may not have been that high off the ground. Some could have been higher. It was only sufficient to get the feet off the ground. He was high enough. The man put a sponge on a reed in order to reach his mouth, but it, uh, he may not have been that that high up off the ground. Uh, but they mistake that he's calling out for Elijah. And some actually say, well, wait a minute, let's uh, let's see where Elijah comes to save him or not. Before we help him, maybe we ought to see whose side Elijah is on. Um, probably an expression of mercy, the, the wine, uh, in response to Jesus saying that he's thirsty as he's there on the cross. This last bit of interaction before Jesus dies. And he utters that final cry, it is finished. Uh, it's been accomplished. We need to recognize that Jesus' atonement, Jesus' suffering, was in fact on the cross. He remains under the power of death for three days, but his atoning work actually was done and was finished on the cross. But then something very interesting happens. He says he cries out with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Nowhere do any of the gospel writers speak of death the way that they do of the death of Jesus. Uh, and in fact, here it says he yielded up his spirit, that it was a voluntary action. And Jesus had said in his ministry, I lay down my life. No one can take it from me. And Jesus, having finished what he had come to do, then becomes the ransom for many by dying. Apparently, at least in part, an act of his own will that he died. Now, that was the unimaginable suffering of his crucifixion, the first part, crucified, and recognizing that as Jesus bore our sins, the sins of his people there, that he is rejected and abandoned by his Father. But then that leads to the second part. His death yielded strange but significant results. And let's look then at verse 51. Jesus dies, and no sooner does he die than Matthew says in verse 51, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, there were two curtains or veils in the temple. One, along with doors, that separate the, the holy place, the first room of the temple, inner room, from the outer courtyard. But then there was a second curtain within the temple, and these things were thick, more like stage curtains in a, in a sense, heavy curtains, that would separate the holy place, that first room, from the holy of holies, that back chamber uh, that was seen as the and represented the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people, that place where only the high priest could go, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where he would go in to make atonement for the people. That curtain tore by an unseen hand from top to bottom with Jesus' death. Why? Well, because with Jesus' death, 
Our sins are atoned for and, of course, accompanied with his resurrection. That, too, was necessary. But with Jesus' death, atonement has been made. The, the ransom has been paid, which would indicate that the way to God is now open. That the sacrificial system is surpassed. It is over. It's fulfilled now in the death of the Lamb of God who came and died. And so that curtain that's, that, that would separate from the presence of God has been torn open The way to God is now open. It's available. It's accessible because Jesus has died. But it also had something itself of a sense of judgment to it uh, because at this point, the temple becomes obsolete. The temple's days are rapidly passing, uh, mainly out of theological necessity. Because if Christ, the Lamb of God, has died, then there's no longer any reason to have that earthly temple. There's no longer a place for other sacrifices to be offered. At least these sacrifices for sin, because the lamb, the substitute, the sacrifice has been offered up. And so that temple curtain is torn. The Holy of Holies is exposed. The way to God is open. And the temple now finds that its days are numbered. There's something else that happened. Verse 51, the earth shook. Rocks were split, and probably along with that, tombs were opened. Now, Matthew's chronology here is interesting. He says that the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And we look at the, the timeline there, and we say, okay, how did, this, how did this play out? Well, apparently as part of that earthquake with the death of Jesus, that these tombs were broken open. And although Matthew mentions it here, it seems that accompanying Jesus' resurrection, there were some others who were raised to life again, uh, whether in true resurrection as Jesus was or merely resuscitation uh, from death to life, being raised from death to life like Lazarus was to die again later, uh, he doesn't say But one of the interesting accompaniments was the opening of the tombs. And then with Jesus' resurrection, the raising up of some to life, kind of accompanying his resurrection and as a sign to the significance of his resurrection, as a guarantee of those who would be raised with him, those who have believed in him, even us, uh, who will be raised up when he returns the last day. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, his resurrection is a guarantee because it is the first fruits of our own resurrection. But some of these were raised, at least if not with his death and with his crucifixion, as a sign, as a testimony to the reality and to the effectiveness of what has happened. And so these other strange signs. And then there's last one last thing that accompanies a somewhat strange but significant occurrence has to do with the centurion. Verse 54 When the centurion, those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, remember that Roman detachment there to guard, make sure there wasn't a rescue attempt, wait until he died. The centurion sees what happens. He sees this earthquake. He sees the darkness. He sees and hears uh, the cries of Jesus. He himself cries out, truly, this was the Son of God. Or at the very least, he says, a Son of God. I think the Son of God certainly is a valid translation. 
Perhaps he was familiar with Jesus' claims, was simply witnessing the events of his death unlike anything he'd ever seen before. He says, truly, surely this man was the Son of God. Now we've seen how there's irony uh, in a lot of what has been happening with the mocking of the Jews and that element of truth uh, we saw back in uh, verse 42. He saved others, he cannot save himself. Meant as a joke... And yet profound truth. If he's going to save others, he cannot save himself because he's going to die for them. If he saved himself, he wouldn't save others. So he'd still be in our sins. That irony. Well, here is this ultimate irony right here at Jesus' death where the Jews have so soundly and roundly denounced and rejected Jesus. And this pagan at Jesus' death confesses him to be the Son of God. The Jews don't see it. His own people reject him. But this pagan Roman soldier, at his death, declares him to be the Son of God. Ironic? Yes. Sad? For the Jews, yes. At least those who have rejected Jesus. Some of whom would believe, will believe. We need to keep that in mind. But here on the lips of this Roman soldier is this, in a sense, declaration of vindication of Jesus' Claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, those are the, some of the strange but significant things that occur with Jesus' death. Now, Matthew tells us almost as an aside uh, of, of something else, and that has to do with the women who were there watching. Uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Matthew names some of them, verse 55. They were looking on from a distance. They had come down with Jesus from the north in Galilee, down to Jerusalem, uh, they administered to him, helped him, served him, served along with him. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, those are James and John. And they're present there, and they're witnessing Jesus' death. Uh, it's also worth noting, though, though he was one who fled, John later returned and was present there. John's gospel itself records this. You'll remember where Jesus places his mother Mary under the disciple John's care, behold your mother, behold your son. Uh, and from that time on, John took Mary uh, to live with him at their house, at his house, uh, and cared for her. Uh, but there, even on the cross, Jesus is concerned for Mary's well-being and puts her under the care of his disciple John, who was present there. But here are these women. Even after the disciples, for the most part, have fled and are somewhere else, the women are there. Uh, because they were women, they probably were seen as less of a threat, less likely to be subject to arrest because of their association with Jesus. Uh, but give them credit. They were there. They were witnessing this uh, literally excruciating, the word comes from the Latin word for cross, this excruciating scene and witnessing this one whom they loved and whom they trusted dying there and having that privileged seat at the turning point of history See Jesus die on the cross. His crucifixion involved unimaginable suffering and mysterious suffering. His death involved strange but significant uh, events there. And then finally, in the third place, his burial. And his, even his burial is a fulfillment of Scripture. Let's look at verse 57. When it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Now, this Joseph occurs in other places. Uh, Matthew here describes him as rich. He describes him as a disciple of Jesus. Um, Mark describes him as a respected member of the council. 
the Sanhedrin, but one who was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke describes him as a good and righteous man and a disciple of Jesus. Uh, John describes him as a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So apparently here was this man, Joseph, wealthy, prominent citizen in Jerusalem, a member of the Sanhedrin, either not present for these events, the events of the night before, uh, or uh, had, been out, had been voted down, um, who himself was a godly man who was a believer in Christ, but kept it secret because of his position and because of the consequences that could come. Uh, the Bible makes no judgment call on that. Uh, it's pointless to argue whether he should have been more vocal about his faith. At least at this point, however, he was quiet. Well, it's this man, Joseph, who may well have been known to Pilate because of his prominence and because of his wealth, comes to Joseph, or comes to Pilate rather, and asks him for the body of Jesus. And Pilate agrees, and the body is given to Joseph. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which would have been cut out of rock, not so much a grave in the ground as we think of it, but you're probably familiar with the idea of the the grave then being more of a, a cave or cut into rock with a stone that can be rolled down a slight slope to seal the door, uh, often having uh, several places for several different bodies, several different family members all at rest uh, together in the same tomb. But Joseph came and spared Jesus the usual outcome of one who was crucified, and that is to be dumped rather unceremoniously into a common grave. Uh, Well, Joseph uh, spares Jesus that indignity and gives him a proper burial Uh, preparing the body and indeed placing it in his own tomb, uh, which he had a new tomb, which he had for himself. He's from Arimathea, which uh, just kind of by way of trivia is the uh, Old Testament town of Ramathaim, 1 Samuel 1.1, which is where Samuel happened to be from, about 22 miles northwest of Jerusalem. That's where this man Joseph was from. And it's also worth noting in uh, John 19, we read about this, that when, when Joseph was preparing Jesus' body, he wasn't alone. Nicodemus was helping him. Remember Nicodemus from John 3, who came to Jesus under cover of night, was talking with Jesus about who he was and about the kingdom. Well, this Nicodemus, uh, if wasn't a believer at that point, at least is there, and he's helping Joseph with the body, may well have been, become a believer Maybe as a result of that conversation, you know, though he didn't quite seem to understand, uh, he was there with Joseph, helping prepare the body of Jesus for burial. And they placed Jesus in his tomb, which is a fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 9, uh, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And he was laid in the tomb of a rich man, and he rolled the stone over the tomb, and went away. And then one other note that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. You know, some have tried to discount the resurrection by saying, well, they went to the wrong tomb. Well, here they were when Joseph placed Jesus in the tomb. Maybe let's give these ladies some credit. They knew where Jesus' body had been laid to rest. And so crucified, dead, and buried. What do we make of that? Well, a couple of thoughts. First of all, you have to come to grips with how many prophecies were fulfilled just in these couple of passages that we've looked at the last two weeks, let alone the birth prophecies and birth fulfillment and all of that or different prophecies through Jesus' life that Matthew time after time 
points to. Here, they're happening so fast, he doesn't even point and say this was fulfilled in Scripture. It's just as if verse after verse is a fulfillment of something in the Old Testament having to do with the suffering and death and burial of Jesus. The evidence piles up, pointing to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he was. And you could say, well, you know, he knew Psalm 22. Of course he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would have known that psalm well. Yes, he would have. But the Roman soldiers who cast lots for his clothing didn't. They weren't consciously trying to fulfill Scripture. They were probably entirely ignorant of Psalm 22, and yet they do precisely what it says. And that Jesus should be taken by this wealthy man, Joseph, secret disciple, and placing Jesus in his own tomb, fulfilling Scripture. You know, even the people passing by and mocking that fulfillment from Lamentation 1 we looked at last time. What are you to make of that? Well, it simply points up and increases the insistence that we need to take Jesus seriously. We need to reckon with this one about whom just in his suffering and death, just in his last 24 hours, so many prophecies of the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the fact, are fulfilled. Do you see that? Do you feel the weight of that? Does that not encourage your faith in Jesus? And if you don't believe in Jesus, does that not confront you with the fact that this is one whom you dare not ignore? That's the prophecy's point that he is, in fact, whom he claimed to be. Second thing I would mention, just by way of thinking about this text, we see here the need to recognize the horror of sin and yet, the grace of the one who gave himself for us for that sin. There's sometimes this kind of thinking out there, you know, almost as if there's two gods. There's the God of judgment of the Old Testament, and there's the God of grace of the New Testament. Well, you can look at the Old Testament. Yes, you do see some pretty significant judgment taking place, everything from the, uh, the, the great flood of Noah's day, to God's pouring down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, to God's bringing the Babylonians and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple there in Jerusalem. Some pretty horrific acts of judgment in the Old Testament. But I suggest to you that right here in Matthew chapter 27, you see the ultimate act of God's judgment recorded in Scripture. Here you see the sinfulness of sin, and here you see the fearsomeness of the wrath of God, that he would judge even his own son, even God the Son, when he became sin. But we see here the seriousness of sin. We see here the hatred of a holy God against our sin, that he would judge it like this. You and I cannot begin to imagine the depths of abandonment that Jesus felt on the cross. But the good news is, precisely because Jesus felt that himself, you and I need not feel that abandonment and that judgment of God. It is not only God's greatest act of judgment, it is also God's greatest act of grace. Because it's here, as Paul said, that we see that God is both just and justifier. He is just in judging even his own son when he became a sinful thing in God's sight. But he's the justifier in that The Son took the punishment so that He could forgive and pardon and receive those of us who are in fact sinful, but whose sin was placed on Jesus and judged in Jesus. You see, if you were a Christian today, your sins, every one of them, have already been punished. 
They've already been judged. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation to you who are in Christ Jesus. Why not? Because for your sins, judgment day has come and gone. We just read about it here in this passage. Isn't that a magnificent thing? That God's judgment, his displeasure against your sin has already been poured out. All of it. And it's gone. It's satisfied. It was absorbed by Jesus himself for you. And that truly is good news. And so the question remains, have you believed in this Jesus who bore the wrath of God for sinners, for all who would believe in him? Have you believed in him? Do you know that you were one of those for whom he gave his life? Look at what he suffered. Dear friends, that judgment either falls on Christ or it will fall on you. It will fall on Christ or it will fall on the unbeliever who dies in his unbelief. You see something that is a taste of hell in this passage. Will you suffer that yourself? Or did Jesus suffer that for you? Which will it be? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let this happen to you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we recognize that we stand on holy ground as we come to your word and we come to a passage like this. Father, we thank you that though we were not there, not like those dear women who followed Jesus even to his death, that when we were not there, we can be there through this printed page as we read of these accounts. And Father, we are in awe of your grace that you would send a Savior to bear this, that you have saved us indeed from yourself, from your judgment, from your wrath. Thank you, Father, for our Savior. Father, give us grace that we might believe in him and have life in his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.